Hello, and welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. Today we bring you the second of three recordings from our Tragic Martyrs live event that happened at the Dogstar in Brixton earlier this month. The next act will come out next Friday and it will be followed the week after by a stand-up tragedy special featuring clips and interviews with the performers. Some of the acts have visual elements but we think that you're still going to enjoy them. But if you want the full SUT audio and visual experience, come to our Tragic History Night on Friday the 16th of May. Hello, everybody. Excellent stuff, excellent stuff. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave and I'm your host. And what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. Uh, It's a variety night, so you're going to see some comedy, you're going to see some spoken word, you're going to see some storytelling, you're going to see all sorts of wonderful things. I don't even want to spoil it by revealing what you're going to see. What we do here at Stand Up Tragedy is we make people cry until they laugh and laugh until until they cry. So the content tonight may be serious, it may, may very well be sad, it may also make you laugh. So be prepared to go through the whole gamut of emotions tonight uh, and be prepared to go to some dark places, but also be prepared to have some lights shined into those dark places because that's what tonight is all about. It's about tragic martyrs. That's our theme tonight. Okay, if everybody would like to take their seats because we're going to start Act 2 of Tragic Martyrs. So I'm going to be talking a bit now, I'm afraid. So if you didn't like it earlier on, <laughs> that's, uh, that's what you're getting again. But anyway, welcome to Act Two. So hello, everybody. Are you still out there? Nice. Oh, people saying my name. That's nice. So um, I, w- I should say at this, uh, this juncture of the night, our next night uh, and our next fanzine will be Tragic History, which is going to be on Friday the 16th of May at the Hackney Attic. So get that date in your diary. There's a bit of a longer period of time between now and then as well, which is, which is great for the team because there's been a bit of a short time between this and the last one, which was tragic in lots of ways, which is appropriate for the night. Uh, anyway, so I, I, as, as you know, I'm, I'm I, you know, revealing it to you as again Um, I haven't prepared so I looked at Wikipedia but what I looked up on Wikipedia because I had a kind of I remembered this phrase um, was martyr complex because I vaguely remembered it and this is what uh, a martyr complex is in psychology a person who has a martyr complex sometimes associated with the term victim complex desires the feeling of being a martyr for his slash her own sake seeking out suffering or persecution because it feeds a psychological need which reminded me of my mother because uh, because that's kind of what she's about in lots of ways uh what i just described to you i was i was sort of thinking of a good example of this i don't know if it is a good example of martinus but it does give you an idea of what my mum's like so um Basically, so my mum was, you know, came to stay with me and my partner Jen, and uh, Jen made her, my mum breakfast. Uh, my mum cried because the eggs weren't the kind of eggs she wanted to have. 
she cr- like cried at the breakfast table. Uh, and uh, then she sort of like, uh, like said, oh, it's because the, the reason I'm feeling so emotional is because I've given up smoking and, uh, and all of this stuff. And that became the, the reason why my mum did this. But it's not the reason why. Uh, my mum does things like that all the time. Uh, and, if, and Jen was very shocked uh, by the, by the behaviour of my mum in this case. Uh, but this is the thing. It's like, f- for my mum and for lots of people, you know, they are the centre of the universe, uh, which has its pr- pluses and, and minuses. Uh, in fact, both are, pr- both are minuses. Uh, because either they feel like the whole world is against them, uh, or they feel like they are the worst person in the world. But it's always the biggest thing in the world. And that's what my my mum is like. Uh, I'm I'm amusing myself just by reading the line, crying over spilt eggs. Uh, So so that's the thing with my mum. You never get uh, an apology that is meaningful because it's either I'm sorry for everything in the world or I'm not sorry because the world is against me and so it's justified for me to behave appallingly. But uh, so then Wikipedia goes on. Uh, that bit wasn't Wikipedia, clearly. Uh, in some cases, this results from the belief that the martyr has been singled out for the persecution because of exceptional ability or integrity. And my mum certainly got that. Uh, she feels like she is singled out for her lack of ability and for her it- integrity, both of those things in, in the same time. Um, theologian Paul Johnson considers such beliefs a topic of concern uh, for the mental health of the clergy. That's a bit random, isn't it? I thought. Uh, other martyr complexes involve willful suffering in the name of love or duty. Does that sound familiar? Because that's, that's, that's kind of what my mum's about too. Um, and this has been observed... This is what Wikipedia says, right? I'm not endorsing this, as you'll see. But Wikipedia says... Uh, This has been observed in women, especially in poor families, as well as in codependent or abusive relationships. Well, so here's what I think about this particular line that I just read out. Uh, That sounds a little bit like the patriarchy, right? Because, uh, I mean, I'm going to... So today I'm here to martyr myself, to call out, to witness... Uh, the fact that the Wikipedia editor there and psychology in general are being complete fucking dicks. Uh, because, I mean, taking a massive shit on uh, oppressed working class women uh, because they got martyr complexes seems a bit ridiculous. Because how can you blame people for feeling like martyrs when you're crucifying them daily by the way your policies are and the way you treat those people? So I say... Bullshit. I don't really buy this martyr complex. I think people have got reasons behind why they feel like this. Uh, certainly my mum has. So when, if, we, if we were uh, amused a little bit by my stories of my mum, and they are amusing, there is context behind that. There are reasons why my mum behaves that way. She's certainly been crucified by a fucking load of men throughout her life. She's crucified a few herself, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, she's not been treated well by men, by the patriarchy. And then the patriarchy get to come and write their Wikipedia articles about why my mum is a problem. Um, so that pissed me off. Um, and there's always context around and within a martyr. 
There's reasons from inside themselves why they do what they do. And there's reasons from the world around them why they do what they do. They're human and they have reasons, just like all of us. They might be right, as I said earlier on. They might be wrong. But they always have those reasons. And uh, I think, you know, any of us, given the right circumstances or the right brain chemistry, could certainly have moments of martyr complexes. I mean, do, like, I, I, look, I am, my, I am the, you know, my mum's son, so obviously I've inherited everything I've been just dissing my mum for. I do that shit, right? I could cry. Could I? Could I, I? I could cry about eggs, right? Yeah, this is my friend and my girlfriend both nodding their heads really strongly. So I could be as twattish as my mum was about those eggs. Uh, and I think that maybe we all can. I think we all have those moments where we feel like the world is, like, that we are the most important person in the world or, like, everything in the world is kind of against us. I mean, let's just see. Let's have a little little crowd work. I'm really terrible at crowd work because I'm a really awkward person, but I like to do it because I like awkward moments. So uh, let's see. Let's have a show of hands. So who feels like they have experienced a a martyr complex-like moment in their life? Well, that's nice, isn't it? It's like I'm Spartacus. There's a few of us around. Um, and who, 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 who regularly has a martyr complex? Let's see if people will, will own up to that. Yeah, me too. Um, so we've all got martyr complexes, it seems. I think the best way to deal with that is to have some compassion and some kindness for the people who feel that way. And then maybe they'll stop feeling like they're persecuted because maybe they just need to be listened. Maybe the way we have to respond to martyrs or witnesses is to be their witness for them and hear them and listen to them. That got a bit serious, didn't it? So, uh, since it's a really serious and inappropriate moment, I'm going to introduce the next act. Uh, So, uh, this is The Sound of the Ladies. He's going to, maybe he should start, yeah, making his way up here because he's going to have to set up a little bit behind me while I'm introducing him. Uh, This is Martin Oswick, The Sound of the Ladies. Put your hands together for him because otherwise it gets even more awkward. You can find him at www.thesoundoftheladies.com and I'm welcoming him back to our stage. He's so far never disappointed. (laughs) That's a great way to introduce them. You've never disappointed me before. Will you you disappoint me tonight? There's still time. So he'll tell you what he's doing. Uh, Maybe give him another clap just to cover me getting getting down. There we go. Thank you very much. Uh, so, when uh, Dave told me he was doing a whole night about Tragic Martins, <laughs> I, was, I was very excited. I am a Tragic Martin. It's not, I can basically be in character the whole evening. It's, uh... Uh, so, I've got a couple of songs. Um, uh, the first of these songs I'm not going to talk too much about. It's, uh, it's a song about a woman that died for her beliefs, but it's. Uh, well, actually, that can be taken so many different ways in the song. So, um, rather than doing the normal singer songwriting thing of going, I was uh, eating a sandwich when I wrote the song. It was in 1997, and that whole, you know, that whole, that whole context thing. I think I, f- I find that a bit annoying. I'll do that with the next one. Don't worry. But um, if you have to explain a song, you probably don't want to listen to it by the time. Uh, it's called "The Only Girl Who Would Ever Break My Heart."
first reached New York City And I got the terrible news Port Authority, I did not know what to do So I got a greyhound to New Jersey As exotic as that sounds And asked If I could make love to you there inside the stranger's house It's not as if I got turned on by the thought that you might cry But back then That was my answer to everything that's why When I think about what happened It still leaves a nasty taste She was just a girl With a tambourine around her waist He said our bodies are A mystery to us But you didn't even know Where your beauty was Would I have told you If I'd known from the start You would be the only girl Who would ever break my heart And I think about Winona On the telly in the movies She was just a girl I was just a boy And when I first saw Heathers It was like I had a second cousin Or a second sister Because I already have one I knew that things were not okay But I was not alone Like when I first saw Slacker By Richard Linklater On a small TV at home So I heard that got married had a family and caught malaria from a mutual friend that I no longer talk to and thanks to the power of the internet because we are getting older and life takes things away We let it well off And think about Winona And think about Winona She was just a girl when I was just a boy And I think about Winona I think about Winona She was just a Just a boy and I think about Manona And I think about Manona
So I have, I have one more song. Uh, this is a video to go with it, uh, which I made myself. Thanks to the power of, not the internet this time, but paper. And uh, Final Cut Pro. Uh, so this is a song about... Uh, this, is, this guy isn't really a martyr, but I, I've mart- martyred him in my song. It's about uh, a guy called Joseph Bazalgette. Do people know who Joseph Bazalgette is? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, someone want to pray see for me? So he's the guy that uh, was instrumental in rebuilding the, the, or extending the Victorian sewer system. And um, he wasn't really a martyr. I mean, he had a pretty good life. He was knighted and all that kind of jazz. Uh, but he, um, he did have a breakdown in his 20s. I think that's as close as he gets to martyr- martyrdom. In my song, um, I martyr him because he has a, a sort of like petty mal epilepsy episode and is trapped in a dream world of an infinite sewer. Uh, which, uh, which is uh, so he did. He wasn't a martyr himself, but I martyred him. The song is called Ten Thousand Letters of Love," and if you like the, the, um, the thing, the video, you can see it online as well. Um, Ten Thousand Letters of Love" is the name of the song, uh, and in a second, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start. Do you wanna... I've never stepped into the downpour I stand between raindrops Hearing the heartbeats and breathing The petrichor breathing The petrichor The sultry sky sent me Ten thousand love letters You never knew all I needed Was you But how could I know And how could she know me When I never once met her I never once met her I once met Basil Jett, the prince of affection. He loved the glory but hated the attention from ten thousand plumbers and their endless questions. They honored and batched him. Imperial style for reflecting your bitter tears. In a smile, you weren't even worthy. A cursory mention. You'd not have been grateful for the attention. You'd not have been grateful for the attention. 
I wonder whether I'd have liked him better If he'd shut his mouth and just listened Some more he'd smell petrichor, petrichor, petrichor And his body would ripple and fall to the floor And what did he dream but a labyrinth of brick Where he'd roam in a rain 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 Ten thousand tributes from the city above Ten thousand letters Letters of love Letters of love Letters of Downpour, I stand between raindrops, hearing the heartbeats and breathing the petrichor, breathing petrichor. Oh, the sound of the ladies, everybody. Martin Ostwick. He made all that video from paper. That's nice, isn't it? Anyway, (laughs) there we go. So, our next performer, uh, you can find her on Twitter, at Lara Mascara NYC. You can find her, and uh, you can sort of, like, you can't friend her, but you can like follow her posts on Facebook, uh, Lara B Sharp. And uh, yeah, this is Lara B. Everybody, put your hands together for Lara B. I have no idea what she's going to do, but I suspect it's going to be brilliant. Hi, everybody. Um, I'm not from here, so if I start talking really fast and you can't understand, just give me a fist pump and I'll slow down. I don't want you to get lost. So. I didn't know that there were things that you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table, and I think that's British. And I think that's because... 
It goes back like a really long way because this is where the history comes from. And I think that you've never, ever, ever enjoyed Mexican food until you've had a discussion about colostomy bags while you've eaten a fajita. And I feel for you. Hello. Is it on? Am I good? Am I too loud? Okay. Um, I don't consider myself tragic, and I don't consider myself a martyr. I always sort of thought of myself more along the lines of, like, an egomaniac with an inferiority complex, which is, like, inherited because I'm Cuban and Irish and Jewish. And either they were going to end up with that or they were going to build a bomb. And they got me, which isn't so bad. Um, so I have notes because I only had 44 years to prepare to talk about my mother. <laughs> so for, for, you know, most of my life, it was like Life of Larrabee starring her mother over there. Her mother was like, my mother was really fabulous and tall and had huge tits and she took up all the air in the room. Um, and, uh, you know, she was, like, mostly a normal mom, except she wasn't, but in one way she was, because she, you know, she knew how to press my buttons, you know, because she installed them, like <laughs> your mother did. Your mother definitely did, I can tell from looking at you. You spot it, you got it, sister. Uh, yeah, so, I know that you're not supposed to talk about your mom in the UK at a dinner table. But where I'm from, you could talk about your mom, even to your mom. And we fought. We fought all the time because that's what mothers and daughters do. And I know that being a mom is the hardest job in the world. I get it. I tried to raise my mother and I fucking failed. Okay? So I know. Like, you're not telling me anything I don't know. So I'm not here to diss moms. You know, it's, it's all good. She, you know, she was, she was very hard to manage, and she, she would stay out late, and she would, you know, not wear a bra, and she would go out on motorcycles and not put on a helmet, and she would borrow money and not pay it back, and I'm still angry. Because I inherited so much from her. I'm so like her. I am my mother's daughter. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And every other fucking cliche you can think of, it's all in there. The thing is, moms, they, they, they pass you their issues like it's a family recipe for cake. <laughs> they do. That's what they do. If I had a kid, I, my cats are fucked up. If I had a kid, it would be fucked up. I don't have any kids. You're all going to fuck up your kids. Just get cats. They're like children. But if you fuck them up, they can't really tell. They won't write about it. Everything I write about, you're not supposed to talk about. You could have told me that a year ago when I met you, Dave. I'm just saying. Right, back to my mother and me. So, ah, yes, okay. 
So for the first 22 years of my life, I had the same conversation with my mother. And it wasn't good. It was an argument. I argued with my mother for 22 years. For 22 years, I said, I'm the daughter. You're the mother. I don't know what the argument was about. I never, never won. So I stopped arguing. Because there wasn't any point. I wasn't going to win. So, you know, I know, I really do know that my mother just wanted me to be happy. She just wanted me to be happy. She wanted me to be a lesbian and a sculptor and live in a squat in Paris and be happy. That's all she wanted for me, you know? She didn't have bad intentions. That's just who she was. So, I don't know where I am. My mother taught me to make lists, too. All right. I'm going to read you something here. That's what's on here. And it is something that I wrote in 1983. Was anyone here alive in 1983? Raise your hand. Six people. Okay, for the rest of you, 1983 was really good. You missed it. All right, so I'm just going to say, you'll never understand how cool David Bowie was. All right, I'm going to read this. It's called Art. I'm going to get a chair, though, because I'm old. I found this in my mother's jewelry box. It was folded up, really, really small, and it was stuck in the corner. That's where I found it. I wrote this in 1983 when I was 13 years old, so don't get on my case if it sucks, because I was 13. And I wrote it from a New York State group home for neglected children, the... The envelope was with it. I mailed it to her. And it's called Art. She came home at daybreak, stumbling in with glitter falling from her eyes and sequins falling from her dress. I watched my mother tie her glistening blue-black hair up in a knotted mess with an old torn scarf. She still looked beautiful. Her mascara and lipstick were smudged, as always, after a night out partying, and it made her face look like a watercolor painting. I watched as she reached for the wine key that was always on the kitchen table. She opened the fridge, and she removed the bottle from inside the door. I shivered from the cold blast of air on my bare arms. Afraid she would see me watching her, I pressed my small five-year-old body farther under the table as close to the wall as I could. She poured the wine, and I waited for the next step. The cigarette. She fumbled for her pack inside her disco bag. I could hear the keys and the zipper, the inside pocket, and a few annoyed little mumbles from under her breath. I heard the click of the lighter, and I could smell burning hair. I moved closer to the end of the table just to get a little look. 
I was afraid she'd gone up in flames. I always loved watching her, and I always feared that she would somehow disintegrate. She had a fine film of sweat covering her soft brown body, as usual, making her look like an exotic tropical plant that someone misted. I was glad she had come home alone, even though I knew that that would be the source of her unhappiness tomorrow. I hated the men that she brought home, the noises that they made, and the way they called her baby. She leaned back in the splintered wooden chair and kicked off her black velvet designer stiletto shoes. They were my favorite of all of her shoes. Soon she would finish her two glasses of wine. She'd pour the third. She'd head into her bedroom till late in the afternoon. She never took her shoes with her, and every morning I picked up her shoes from under the table and I wore them while making myself breakfast. When she woke in the late afternoon, she always had a headache. It was my job to bring her water and uh, two, sometimes three, of the little blue pills from the coffee table. On three pill days, I tried to be as quiet as I could. I would spend those days in my room like I did when the grunting men were there. My favorite days were the ones that were two pill days without anyone else but us. She would enter the kitchen. She would roll her eyes and with like a half smile, she would tell me funny stories about the fabulous New York City nightclubs. I would make her strong Cuban coffee, and we would go out. We would go out and we would hunt for furniture that rich people had tossed out. We took the subway uptown to the world of the doorman buildings, and we carried our found treasures all the way back to the Lower East Side. And all the doormen knew my mother, and they all loved her. They even saved some of the good stuff for her in the building storage rooms. We stripped down the tables, and we painted the shelves and glued fabric remnants to the lampshades, and we sold them on St. Mark's Place. My mother always said, we turned other people's trash into works of art, and other people turned works of art into trash. She often said this to me as she put on her dress and her shoes and her makeup for a date, becoming a work of art herself. On March 4th, my mother died. And I went to her house for the first time. And I cleaned up after her for the very last time.
Larrabee, everybody. Yeah, I guess I should have expected a, a night about martyrs to be about mothers. Uh, so far, <laughs> who knows where it will go next? So our next uh, performer is Deborah Francis White, who you can find at www.debrafrancis-white.com. Uh, so put your hands together for Deborah Francis White. So I always knew I was adopted. Uh, it was always said as if it was a very positive thing. You're special. We specially wanted you. Some people have children accidentally. Not us. We had to fill out a form. <laughs> My mother teases me now that when I was a toddler, when I met people for the first time, I used to tell them I special so they would know. I say, yes, Mother, that is because you told me that. But it, the truth is, I think I probably did feel special because I was the only kid in the family who had a cool story about my birth because my brother and sister were born the regular way. Um, now, you would have been told growing up you look exactly like your mum or the spitting image of your dad. Just put your hand up if you look like your mum. Nothing bad will happen. Look like your dad. You look like some other random relative. Random relative. Random, yes. Who do you look like? Your grandfather? He's not too random. He's a direct, but, but you know, delightful. He must, he must, be, he must be cute. Uh, 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 and you, sir? You look like your second cousin. Wow. Right, do you think you, have, you may have the same dad? It's possible. No, best to keep that suppressed. Um, or you'll end up up here. Um, that's what happens. If you're like Laura B and you face it head on, you, you, you're, up, you're up here. That's what happens. Um, uh, anybody not look like anyone in their family? Not look like anyone in their family? Oh, the, the thing is, I didn't look like anyone in the family, but people always told me anyway. They'd say, you look just like your mum or the spinning image of your dad, but I guess people see what they want to see. Because although I shared my parents' house and their... Their, their food and their love, I did not share their genes. Um, the cool story about my adoption uh, that I used to ask my parents to tell me was this. went like this. Um, my parents especially asked for a baby. They filled out a form. And almost nine months to the day after they had asked, as long as you would wait for a baby anyway, my mother got a call. The lady at the hospital said to her, we have a girl for you, a baby girl for you, but you have to come and get her right now. <laughs> just, just don't like those, do you know what I mean? You always end up like that, and then it goes on the internet. I'm much, if, could, if, we, if we could stop and do a little shoot, and I'm really comfortable with that. <laughs> Good, you have what you need now? Good. Um, I became a British citizen last week. That's right. I had to swear allegiance uh, to uh, the Queen and all her heirs, including Prince George, the baby. I am that baby's bitch. Um, and uh, they, they did a formal, they did do a formal photo shoot, and I just had my photos done for Edinburgh. And so the man kept laughing because as I was getting my certificate, everyone else could have kind of sort of came out to get their British citizen certificate, and they went like that. And every time he took a photo of me, I went. 
So I'm used to having my photo taken. I understand. And I understand the implications of someone standing down two steps, looking up. Do you see what I mean, Laura B? You're, you're only going to look like just a big jowl. And that's going to go on the... I know where it's going to be. And I've got to Google myself in six months' time when I'm drunk, late at night, feeling less successful than, you know, is right. I think we'll all agree. And I'll see this jowly photo and I'll think, that was Angles. That was Angles. And I'll leave an anonymous comment. You know, it's probably Angles. She's probably a, a size 10. It's Angles, all Angles. So uh, my mother got a call in the middle of the day. Baby girl, you've got to come and get her now. Uh, so she had to ring my father, who was at work, in the middle of the day, and tell him, you've got to come home right now. <laughs> and, uh, but there'd been a big storm. There'd been a terrible storm, electrical storm. So the phone lines down near his work were down, so she couldn't get through. So she had to send him a telegram. And when he opened it, one of his colleagues in the office said to him, what is it? Have you won the lottery? And he said, no, it's better than that. And he got in the car and he drove home, picked up my mother and my older sister, and they drove 45 minutes away in Brisbane, in Redcliffe, to collect me. And on the way, they had to stop for nappies and bottles because they didn't have anything prepared. And when they got there, my father always used to say, the first time I saw you, you were blue with the cold and so thin. Last fucking time that happened, I'll tell you that for nothing. You get home to a nice middle-class family, you eat everything put in front of you. Because the first ten days of your life, you've had to flag down a passing nurse to get her to bring you milk. When the milk comes, you drink all the milk. And that shit is hardwired, people. That stays with you for life. And they, they picked me up in their arms, and they took me down the steps, onto the pavement of the, in front of the hospital... And as they arrived there, our neighbours, the Langleys, from 45 minutes away, just happened to be driving by in the middle of the day in the week. And they slammed the brakes on, opened the doors, jumped out and ran over to see what was going on because my parents had a newborn baby and my mother had not been pregnant. My parents said, we've just adopted her. And as the Langleys were cooing over me and looking at me, a long line of cars backed up down the street. And my father always said, and you've been stopping traffic ever since. That was the story of my adoption. Now, my mother always said how I was more like her than her biological children, and that is true. Uh, my, my sister is very even-keeled. My mother and I are very theatrical in our emotions. Uh, my mother and I used to like to give extravagant gifts. My sister always hoarded her pocket money for a rainy day. She still got it. She still actually has that pocket money in the bank. She really does. She has that pocket money in the bank for a rainy day. Uh, my mother and I hated maths. Maths was our nemesis. My sister was good at maths. My mother and I found maths to be a language we could not understand. Uh, it was like no one could show us the dictionary. My sister deliberately took five years of sewing at school. That was on purpose deliberately took five years of sewing at school. She chose that. She didn't have to do it. I don't think you're getting it. It was a deliberate choice to sew for a five-year window. That was not compulsory. I had to do six months of sewing, and at the end of that period, all my samplers were dirty and tear-stained. Um, my, my sister is as unlike me as any human being could be. I adore my sister, but she is a tiny bird of a person, and she lives on a vegetarian retreat in rural Australia. She's always stroking a duck or eating a vegetable. 
I live in Camden Town and prefer my steak rare. Uh, my mother and I were the same. My sister was different. I'm aware some of the ways in which I'm like my mother are possibly sublimated attempts to attach myself to her. You know, I knew I wasn't really her biological child, so maybe, maybe you know the way they dress piglets in stripy jackets to get a tiger to suckle them? It's possible I'm just a piglet in disguise. I don't feel that, though. I feel uh, I came up with a very strong personality, and some of the ways in which I have a strong personality, I'm not like anyone in my family. For example, I'm the only performer in the family. My first performance uh, was my nursery school end-of-year show. I was a horse. Um, I, I had to come out with ten other little horses, and we all did a little prancy dance like this. Think Gangnam Style, only I was in a white onesie <laughs> and three years old. And I remember it really well. I remember the audience laughing and clapping and cheering. And I remember all the other horses dancing away. And I remember thinking, this audience is not done with this dance. And they are not done with me. So I danced on. And the audience clapped more. And I danced on. And the audience laughed more. And I danced on. And the teacher had to come and lead me away. And this story was legendary in our household because nobody would have done that. My sister was very shy. Though my sister was four years older, she used to push me in the back. She used to say, you go and buy the ice cream from the ice cream van. You're the outgoing one. My mother tells me when I was seven years old, I asked her what shy meant because I could not get my head around the concept. The other way in which I was not like anyone in my family is I always wanted to live in London, always, from the time I could read. I could read from four years old. I read all the books I read were set in London, and that's where I wanted to live. I knew I wanted to live there. Um, I was brought up in, in Australia, and I know I don't sound especially Australian, but I read a lot of Enid Blyton as a child, and I picked up the accent from the books. <laughs> and in those ways, I couldn't help wondering, was there a mother or a father or a sister or a brother, biologically speaking, out there who may be like me? And I think it doesn't matter how successful your adoption is, and my adoption was successful, you can't help wondering what's behind the curtain. And in my case, I wondered, behind the curtain, was there a big family of people playing games after dinner and laughing... And if I went through the curtain, would they say, oh, it's you. We've been waiting for you. There's a chair here with your name on it. Sit down. Now, I never looked. I always figured it was like a can of worms. I guess I felt that if you don't look, all the wonderful things that might be behind the curtain are still yours. But if you do look, all the terrible things that might be behind the curtain are definitely yours. So I didn't. I could have, because in Australia, adoption has been handled properly. Here in Britain, it seems to have been handled exclusively by nuns. People who seem to me to be uniquely unqualified to understand anything going into or coming out of a vagina. I don't know why. There, in Australia, if you want to give your baby away, you have to give it to the state. Here, I literally know a girl who, I know an actual girl. She was handed over the fence to a neighbour. The lady was leaving the street. She said, I've got four children, you've got none. Do you want the baby? And that lady was allowed to keep that child. In Australia, no. You've got to give the baby to the state. Now, on the other hand, well, Australia was so keen to have an industrial government-run adoption programme, they pretty much snatched babies out of prams, shouted unfit mother, but they were brilliant on the paperwork. Uh, so they apologise about every three months uh, for this embarrassing indiscretion, but they, you know, the forms are wonderfully, the delightful admin on it. Uh, here you just have to find the nun, and she says, oh, I think she had green eyes, and that's all you get. But there, there it's pretty easy. And when I was 21, I rang up and I asked. I said to the, uh, the, the lady the, on the phone... Um, I said, uh, could you tell me my biological mother's name? Now, I did not want 
to uh, contact her. I just thought I should know her name. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, well, yes, I can tell you, but if I tell you her name and then she calls, I will have to tell her your name. It's reciprocal. Do you want that? And I said, oh, God, no, I'm not ready. I may never be ready. No, no, no. I said, don't worry. Don't tell me. And she said, well, I can tell you some things. Uh, I, I can tell you that your biological mother was 21 and single. And I said, well, actually, I knew that. My parents told me that. And she said, right, well, your father was 30 and married to somebody else. And I said, well, I, I knew that. I think my parents told me that so that when I, when I was old enough to ask, ask, ask questions, that they would, so that I would know she had no choice but to give me away. My mother always used to say she must have loved you a lot to give you away. She must have loved you so much she gave you to a family who could look after you because she wouldn't have wanted to do that. And uh, so I always felt loved by everyone. I told the lady this, and she seemed almost put out that I knew and started shouting random facts at me. Well, she was five foot nine. Did you know that? I did not, same as me. She had brown hair and brown eyes. Did you know that? I did not, same as me. And she said, and when you were born, she called you Nadine. Did you know that? And I did not. I didn't even know biological mothers gave their babies names. And I said, well, thank you very much. That's lovely. Um, thank you. And I'll, I'll, you know, nice to have that information. And I went to hang up and she said, I can tell you a first name. I said, what? She said, I can tell you a first name. Because that information is not identifying. I can tell you her first name. So keen was she to give out information. I said, all right then, tell me your first name. She said, well, I'll have to put you on hold because that information is in a more secret file. <laughs> she went off, she came back and she said, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you. I can tell most people. There's a step there. Um, I can tell most people, but not you. You are an exception to the rule. You cannot know your biological mother's first name. And I said, why? And she said, because your birth mother's first name is so unusual as to be identifying. <laughs> and I thought, well, there you are. My birth mother is Jermaine Greer. <laughs> and I lived with that for some years. Uh, I, it was kind of a joke. I would make, it kind of wasn't. I kind of thought, you know, it's good she's given me away. She's done so much for the sisterhood. No, she, she's, done a, she's done a lot with her time, and uh, one day we will discuss feminism in Cambridge, for sure. Uh, but then a few years ago, I thought, you know what, I don't think she's ever tried to find out my name, and I rang them and they said she hasn't, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to roll the dice. I reckon I can ask her name, and she's never going to ask mine. So I said, go on, tell me. Tell me. And the lady on the other end of the phone said, your birth mother's name was Devon Eulalia Pearl. That is a name, Devon Eulalia Pearl. Now my hand shook as I put that into Google because I thought I really could see something with that. You really could see that's a one-off. That's a one-off, people. But there was nothing there. Um, there was a long line of Eulalia Pearls that went back to the 16, 1700s in Cornwall in the censuses. Um, they went back in Cornwall and Devon. Uh, long line of Eulalia Pearls, all landed gentry, big houses, lots of servants. Sure, I think we all saw that coming. <laughs> Touch of the Downton Abbs. Sure. <laughs> But there was nothing under, De even Devon Eulalia, even if she changed her name, I thought I might see something, and I thought, well, you know, a woman that age isn't going to suddenly start to build an enormous online profile, is she? So I just assumed I would find out no more, uh, but, you know, but she was probably just in New York City running a literary salon, <laughs> lying on a chaise long, reading poetry to handsome men, that was most likely. And I figured one day I would get a phone call saying I'd inherited a large Cornish estate, and I got back on with my life.
But on October 23rd, 2012, after a particularly boozy lunch with a friend of mine who had confessed to me that he had biological family he wanted to meet but was too scared to because he was a famous comedian and he didn't want the Daily Mail involved. I thought, oh, I haven't Googled that for ages. I'll just have a look. It'll just take a minute before I drop off to sleep. There's never anything there. And as I hit search, I had never been more wide awake. Because somebody, somebody had archived the electoral records from the time of my birth. Suddenly I could see that Devon Eulalia Pearl had been living in Cooperu, in, in Temple Street, with her mother, Audrey, her father, Charles, her brothers, Duncan and Derek, and her sisters, Danielle and Deborah. A name my mother had dreamt for me. And that was when I began the greatest treasure hunt of my life. I didn't sleep for the following three weeks. At the end of that treasure hunt, I discovered family. Now, I won't, uh, I won't tell you any more because my 10 minutes has run out. And, uh, well, I have a show about it. <laughs> I don't want to give it away. But I will just tell you this. I have spoken to my biological mother and uh, weeks later it was my birthday. And uh, I'd forgotten that she would know that. And she sent me something in the post. She likes to sew. <laughs> she said, I've made you something. She's very crafty. My mother and I have no Blue Peter skills, but my biological mother will. She sent me this. She said, it's a scarf I've made for you. It's not really a scarf, though, is it? It's a loop that goes on forever. It's a woolen apology. A tangible hug. A homemade birth canal. <laughs> and at times it feels umbilical and strangulating, but at other times warm and comforting. I've been Deborah Francis White. My show's Half a Can of Worms. Please come. Thank you very much. <laughs> Deborah Francis White, everybody. Funny, I, I booked her because she used to be a Jehovah's Witness, and then we had an adoption story, which is excellent and the right, the right uh, choice. Yeah, but it was so appropriate to do the adoption, right? Yeah. No, it's the mother section. The whole act has been mothers, hasn't it? It's good. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not criticising your choice. Yeah, sure. I know, I know. It's one of the things that happens in this night. Yeah. The true story people are the hardest to follow in this night because they've always got something really sad to, to do. So if you're a comedian, go with the true story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Uh, I'm sad I didn't uh, drop acid in the interval now. 
Uh, not that I would ever drop acid. Uh, so, um, oh, yeah, that, that, uh, that last sort of section. Um, what did it remind me of? Yes, it's all been about mothers, uh, this section. And, uh, yeah, as I, as I revealed earlier on, I've got a quite a complicated mother. Uh, and uh, I've had some conversations with her that are, on, uh, on, uh, in rec- are recorded. So you should check out my podcast, Getting Better Acquainted, where I've had some conversations with the mother that I was so mean about earlier on. Uh, it's also, it, this is technically the second week of the Getting Better Acquainted personal season uh, where I'm revealing some big things about my life that I'm not going to reveal now because it's going to come out tomorrow on the podcast. Getting better acquainted, you'll find stuff out about me, if you care. (laughs) And some other people. Anyway, so, that's right, personal season. The other thing to know in your uh, break is chocolates. Now, you've all forgotten the chocolates. You get a chocolate if you write down a tragedy. It doesn't have to be personal, and it has to be about martyrs. Not, Not too hard a brief, but quite hard but you get a chocolate so get some chocolate we're going to have a break 15 minutes we'll be back with the story beast with Alice uh, and uh, with Alice Bell and everybody else that is in the second uh, the third wow I completely lost it like I said completely underprepared let's just clap clap losing everything losing my mind let's have some music where we're at Stand Up For Tragedy. Our website is www.standuptragedy.co.uk and we're back on Friday the 16th of April at the Hackney Attic with another live and we're back with Tragic History live on Friday the 16th of April at the Hackney Attic which is upstairs at the Hackney Picture House. And for now, the tragedy is over. This podcast was produced by me. It was recorded by Stephen Harvey with music from Sam Wilkinson and George Rothman.